0: another Tuesday, and another Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett. And don't forget, if you aren't able to listen to the whole program today, you can listen streaming for a week on 3cr.org.au or listen to the program later, podcast. Same with 3cr.org.au. But today, why two women, one Jewish and one Palestinian, attended the Palestine Land Day? memorations last Saturday. we speaking to Shams and Nina. Looking at the likely results of the Ecuadorian elections next week with Fred Fuentes. A worldwide campaign to stop the development of killer robots with Matilda Byrne, who's the coordinator of the campaign here in Australia. Part one of an interview with Sasha Genislikakis, looking at the post-1964 military coup time in Brazil until today, and of course, Mr. Kevin Healy with his week that was.
1: A week, Jan, listener, I know we're not supposed to be critical of other 3CR presenters, but I must take you with a comment Annie made on Solidarity Breakfast last week about no less a great man as Big Supremo Scuttlebill son, aka Scummo one of the most feeble intellects I've ever struck she shocked us and at least qualified with and that's just a personal opinion
2: it certainly is
1: I'm sure listener you were as shocked as I was and I suspect her co-presenter Jamie was left speechless how could anyone think Scudaldim is a feeble intellect why let's just take this week when he well no no perhaps this week's not the best example No, it it almost lends weight to annie's calumny in fact scummo and the team seem to be getting around carrying a great big shovel as every time they open their mouths they dig the hole even deeper so much so that all we can now see is the slightest detail of a balding pate protruding from and the way things are going it will soon disappear like his declaration of support for women his love for his Widowed Mum, presume he threw the widowed in to attract the sympathy vote, but who's going to vote for his mum and then he dug furiously by alleging a you too rather than me too at the Lord Rupert Empire, not that we object to anyone getting stuck into the Lord Rupert Empire, but it just happened to be one hundred percent wrong, one hundred percent incorrect, followed by a late night mayor Corper. This while explaining that when his lot said there would be millions of jabs available, they didn't mean there would be millions of jabs available, and we all have to be patient, presumably so we don't become patients. It's surprising, isn't it, that with all these goings-on in ministerial offices, the number of people who knew absolutely nothing about it didn't have the slightest inkling. And with Shovel firmly in tow, uh, well in hand, Scuttle then set about repairing the damage he had attempted to repair with the previous attempt to repair by deciding a matter solely for the law to take its course was in fact not a matter solely for the law to take its course by banishing former attorney general the sick ailing recuperating pleading innocent christian porterloo to be flushed down the big loo and the minister for trained killing and being offensive linda feminist support reynolds to the depths where at least she's not likely to encounter one of the submarines whose contracts she's handled so efficiently dig dig there does seem to be some memo on the back of the shovel to remind himself. No, not sure we can read it. Oh, yeah, I think it says, better you than me. No, not sure what that means. Look, I do take Annie to task, but perhaps we'll wait till next week, listener, to prove her wrong. Feeble intellect, scummo. At least Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony All being Uzi, has learnt the secret of increasing his popularity from the minus depths to which it had sunk. To nothing just sit back and watch Scuttlebem digging his way into the abyss and after a caring business class mp emotionally announced she would resign at the next election she was joined by the usual commentariat particularly the lord rupert of Wapping commentariat in blaming hounding by leftist thugs yet the best they could come up with was the socialist party and get up both of whom deny the accusations, by the way, but the Socialist Party and get up. So where are the leftists they're blaming? Sure, the Socialist Party does seem to throw up the odd brand-staking thug, but leftist? Come on. But to a place where women are respected as women, as wives and as wives and as wives, and as mothers, 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 homemakers, 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 as images of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that Joseph apparently would believe anything. I know we consider the Lord Rupert of whopping Sin can get a few things wrong, but it is extremely rare for it to get a literal misspelling in a headline. Thus, it picks up the maybe it was a Freudian award for Business Page Tuesday story about Ostrak making a minor error over Vatican finances, claiming the church transferred 2.3 billion into Troubled implying money laundering, when the real figure was far far less, put down to a human error by the Ostrak Supremo the headline, You Men Error Blamed for Vatican Mistake, H-U-M-E-N, and I thought maybe the whopping sin just wanted to sum up the Vatican as a medieval repository for you men. Facing the Senate Estimates Inquiry, the Ostrak Supremo, Nicole Rose, real name, was also heavily questioned over 500 mil of international drug money that passed through True banks. The banks, she said, did not do anything wrong, because they had no idea they were money laundering. As if our oh-so-ethical banks would dream of such a thing. Banks, like many financial institutions, she said, are used by sophisticated criminal elements. (laughs) Some, dare we say, might say they are sophisticated criminal elements, not that we'd say that. Or, oh, but it takes one to, well, well, no, no, they didn't know. And we can but imagine how the ethical men and few women in the Great Bank boardrooms must have felt when they discovered they had been deceived, that they had been used to launder millions by international drug cartels. Oh, how we feel for them. See, one of our proud troubler was. the worst packed bank, is threatening to get out of New Zealand after the NZ government introduced measures, quote, to cool a runaway housing market. Paul Wurzpac claiming the measures would hit it with costly regulations and capital. These totally unjust measures will limit our capacity to rip off the punters, it explained. On great ethical institutions with East Coast floods initiating a flood of insurance claims, we asked insurance executive Roger Smallprint how the industry would handle the emergency. Uh, We're being very honest with people, Roger looked very sincere. Honestly, we we tell those who've been talking out their hard-earned to us for years, you are not covered. It's much fairer. It gets their bitter disappointment over quicker. Uh, But but why aren't they covered? Because they're either not covered for flood damage or not covered for an act of God. It's simple, really. If they're insured for flood damage, we declare it an act of God. And if they're insured for an act of God, we declare it flood damage. Uh, Which means, either way, they're stuffed. After successfully surviving that challenge from an uh, ex-copper called Batten last week, caring business class party state supremo and would-be big state supremo, Michael Nobrain, Said he was proud to have such talent in his party, showing he's easily satisfied. Anyway, one of them, a bloke called Smith, decided to get stuck into the socialist government over not letting enough spectators into the footy. Read, showing you care for footy fans is a vote winner. And in the same grab, he said the government can't control this virus, and then said there was no reason why we couldn't have capacity crowds at the footy. Now, if this is an example of the depth of talent, no brain has a few problems, can't control the virus, no reason why footy shouldn't be open to all, someone should tell this bloke called Smith he can't have it both ways, it's one or the other. An even bigger worry is maybe he's one of the more talented of the invisible bunch, or possibly, no brain knows, that if there was anyone there with the slightest talent, he'd be out the door immediately. As JobKeeper is about to stop jobkeeping, Katmandu Give Us Your Hard Earned announced it had decided not to return the 20 mil it happily accepted while announcing record profits. We thought hard about it, it said. Sure, for as much as roughly five seconds. Rag trade retailer, the ever-smiling, ever-happy Solomon Bigloo, went one better, announcing along with record, record profits, not only would he not hand back the millions he received in corporate welfare, but attacked the Socialist Party for daring suggest he ought to hand a bit back. They didn't take a wage cut, he attacked the Socialists without quite explaining the relevance of that brilliant repartee. Finally, saving the best news to last, exhilarating excitement for lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. And also, a good news for women's story. Proof, the government does appreciate really talented women, appointing women on merit and not by some quota system. Our new fair work, true bluosi, no longer work choices, just looks like it, commissioner, a 13 year appointment that champion of the working class one of our favorite former caring business class mps particularly the former bit yes none other than sophie maura bella Cosa herself now there's a woman scuttle can be proud of like his widowed mum and the government does believe in quotas when appointing to the fair work troublowasi commission balancing the equation by appointing only commissioners from the caring employer's side Obviously, there's nobody on the workers' side worthy of appointment on merit and hasn't been since former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses was elected. That's where quotas work, or fair work. Good afternoon.
0: And you can hear more with Mr Kevin Healy on the programme City Limits, which is tomorrow morning, Wednesday, between 9 and 10.
2: 3CR
3: Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational
2: resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organizing, activist history, digital
3: campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
0: What we're dealing
4: with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
2: Tune in to Done by Law.
4: An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and
2: analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6 pm Tuesdays. The
0: 30th of March is Palestine Land Day and it was commemorated on Saturday the 27th of March outside the State Library in Melbourne, as in other cities around the world. To understand what Palestine Land Day signifies, I spoke on Sunday with two of the speakers at the State Library and asked them first to identify themselves and what Land Day means for them.
5: My name is Shams Mosa. I'm a Palestinian. I have lived in Australia all my life. My parents are refugees. They were exiled out of Palestine when they were very young. My dad was around 13 to 15 years old when he was forced out of his home in from Palestine. My mother was three years old, two or three years old when she left Palestine. I grew up all my life in Australia. I was born in Lebanon, and then uh, we came here when I was very young. We fled another war that happened in Lebanon in 1976. We just missed the massacre that happened in Shatila Sabra Shatila. My parents lived all their life like a refugee camp until we came here. What I believe um, Land Day is, Land Day is a very important day for myself and for most Palestinians. It's to remember all the pain and the suffering the Palestinians go through every year. The main event started on the 30th of March, 1976, when six Palestinians were killed and hundreds were injured. And ever since that day, the Palestinians have been protesting land day on the 30th of March every year
4: my name is Nina uh, Jeffrey Cohen and I grew up in Melbourne's Jewish community hearing so much about the stories of how my family had become a refugee surviving concentration camps and forced transportation across state lines and the murders of my great-grandparents but hearing so little about subsequent millions of Palestinian people who have been made to be refugees and been made to suffer under racism and oppression. And as I've grown up and have sought out that information and learnt that truth about the creation of the State of Israel through violence and subjugation of Palestinian people, it's become increasingly important for me to be part of days like Land Day where I am able to support people like Shams and Free Palestine, Melbourne to have that commemoration in the city and to tell the story of of what's happened. And it's my hope that by being part of it, I'm able to be another voice to telling the truth. Can I just add, like, I get quite emotional
5: when I hear a Jewish person who understands and would love to support the Palestinian cause especially on land day or Nakba Day because most Palestinians and I can say this are very hurt with the betrayal of those Arab allies who betrayed them so I get emotional when I'm thinking about that betrayal but at the same time um honored to have a Jewish person support me and Free Palestine and the Palestinians all around the world in, in
4: this special day. In, yeah, in the same way that my grandmother, she was yeah. such a talented storyteller. I was so lucky to um, have her have such a big hand in raising me growing up yeah. that she would tell me a lot about how she felt angry still at, 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 towards the bystanders. In, in the war that she survived and becoming an adult and feeling that I would be a bystander both on a colonized land called Australia but also the Palestine where there's a genocide literally being carried out under my name there's not a way for me to reconcile that with the person that I want to be but also the spirit that the, the, the heart that's beating it's yeah. impossible to reconcile wanting to be a good person with, with also being a bystander to genocide. Exactly. And that's why I'm emotional every time I bring up the
5: betrayal. We have been betrayed, betrayed by these Arabs, unfortunately, they're Arab Zionists. Do you me through the normalization? Yeah, yeah, exactly. and And it's hurtful, and that's why it means a lot for a Jewish person to come in and support. And there's so many Jewish people who have been supporting the Palestinians in Melbourne, and possibly around Australia. But in Melbourne, I have um, worked with a lot of Jewish people, and the support is tremendous, and the support is great. Yeah, and I appreciate it, and I thank thank them, and whoever, even the non-Jewish people, who stand by the Palestinians because they understand the pain and the struggle they have been going through for so many years.
0: How many Jewish people in the Melbourne community would feel the same way as you do? That's
4: not something I can answer with any accuracy. Um, I don't know that the research exists on how many Jewish people, either in Melbourne or elsewhere, um, identify a Zionist or are vocal against Zionism. I think it's a very hard position for a lot of Jewish people to come to. I do hold in my heart a lot of sympathy for Jewish people that, like myself, feel that they've grown up with misinformation that comes from being part of a Zionist school system um, and a day school system and also like the after-school programs I feel like I can relate that it's difficult to unlearn things that have been taught to us that are untrue. So I don't know, I can't give you a number on how many people feel or think the way that I do, but I believe that it's more and more people, as information becomes more readily available, as we are able to access the truth more and more, and as we build more and more connections with Palestinian people and hear the truth through their stories, more and more people are... Coming to understand the truth of what a uh, violent occupation, the creation of the state of Israel, and ongoing has been. And the more people that, the more Jewish people that listen and learn, the more people that are going to be speaking out.
0: How difficult was it for you to find Palestinians and to learn the truth about what's, what has happened and what is still happening in Palestine? It's only
4: difficult to start, it's only difficult to make the decision that you're okay with accepting that you've grown up with misinformation. And once you start, it's not hard. Once you acknowledge that some of the beliefs that you hold are untrue, factually, then it's easy to find information, it's easy to read books, it's easy to have conversations, it's easy to put your hand up to join groups and support Palestinian people in the important work that they're doing.
0: How has that affected your relationship with your families?
4: Oh, I mean, that's a, I guess, a, um, a hard question to quantify because I guess I'm not silent in discussions with my family about what I believe. Because I think it's very important to start, you know, if you consider yourself an activist or a truth-teller, to start from home, to not avoid tough conversations wherever they may arise, which includes with family members. I don't think it's appropriate to talk the truth in one sphere and then not talk the truth at home because it makes your Passover setters more comfortable. But I think that what it is teaching me is how to tell the truth but being mindful that everyone's on a different journey to understanding the truth and that it's important for me to respect their journey if it's different from mine, to not be rude, to not be disrespectful, especially the family who have supported me in my life more generally, and to approach tough conversations with compassion for whoever I'm talking to.
0: Can you give an example of how you do that? if you're at a, a meeting or at, a, at the dinner table?
4: The same way I would any tough conversation, to always listen, that's um, absolutely vital. With somebody saying something, even if it's founded in misinformation that may stem from propaganda, or in the case of Zionist information, likely does stem from propaganda, they still believe that, and they believe it for a reason. So it's absolutely vital that I respect their opinion because it, form, it forms part of who they are. And I'm not trying to discredit somebody as a person, particularly not somebody that I care about, but really anybody more broadly. And if their opinions form the basis of their worldview, it's not for me to try and attack them for that. So approaching every conversation with compassion and also understanding that, that Zionism you know, as a mindset, quite you know, possibly does stem from generational trauma. So it's not for me to try and rub salt into people's wounds, even if they're causing harm to others. So while still not shying away from the dialogue, I don't believe it's for me to try and be rude to somebody or attack them personally because they hold beliefs. I think that, the best way for me to equip myself is, is with information, is with knowledge. So reading books, listening to Palestinian people, because they have the information. They they are the ones that can speak with authority on what happened without propaganda. There's, you know, Palestinian people are the ones that will story tell with truth without propaganda. And so the more I learn and listen, the more I guess I can engage with others in tough conversations with the actual facts.
0: Can I take you both back to this land day, the demonstrations in 1976? Many, many other times Palestinians have been killed, injured, lost their land. Why is this time in 1976 so important?
5: Well, that was the year when they killed those six Palestinians for no particular reason, and injured hundreds. It's not they haven't killed before that. They've killed hundreds before that. But on that particular day, those six were standing. They didn't have wet hands. They didn't have anything. They were just standing there, and then they were killed. To remember those days, they were standing because they were. They have no rights. They were struggling against racism because they were treated like they were second-class citizens. They felt like they weren't welcome in their own country. So ever since 1976, we've been going out protesting on the 30th of March, that's the day when those six people and hundreds were injured, go out and do the same thing as what they were doing and remembering them, remembering what those Palestinians were doing on that day, fighting for justice, standing there for justice. And that's the reason why we go out on the 30th of March every year.
0: What happens in Palestine on the 30th of March every year?
5: Most of the Palestinians march towards the wall and they um, protest basically against how they've been treated. They protest against what's happening to them. Every year they've killed even more. When they march towards the fence, every year hundreds get killed. Now there's um, rallies have been killing innocent people like um, reporters, nurses, doctors, They've been killing... They kill left, right, and centre. It doesn't matter who who they are. The fact that they're Palestinians, they don't look at them as their normal people. They have been killing hundreds and hundreds of Palestinians. But because it started severely in 1976... Well, they've been killing since 1948. But the fact is that day... We remember as Land Day because of those six people. But ever since, every year, hundreds have been killed and murdered by the Israeli soldiers.
0: You had your rally and meeting on Saturday. could you explain who was there and what the service was like?
5: Yeah, there was um, a lot of um, different people, Australians, Jewish, A multicultural kind of an atmosphere. We had the Aboriginal uncle Gary Volley. He came and he actually stood and spoke in support of the Palestinians. We had Tasneem who is a Palestinian who lives in Australia and studying. She's um, her PhD. She came and spoke in support of the um, Palestinian Land Day. We had Sue Bolton, who is a socialist, who stands every year at the same event in support of the Palestinians for their rights and justice. We also had um, Nina, who spoke on behalf of the Jewish people in support of the Palestinians. And then we had Adam and Nina, Adam is my son, and they both read out uh, Mahmoud Darwish. He's a poet, Palestinian poet. They read out a couple of his poems. And we also had an overseas speaker who sent a film, a recorded film for us in support of Free Palestine Melbourne. He was um, a high-profile speaker. His name is Mustafa Barghouti, and he endorsed Free Palestine Melbourne and supported our work, hard work, that we have achieved on Saturday to um, organise this protest in a short period of time.
4: There were two poems. those alongside Adam. For me, joining Free Palestine Melbourne only recently, it's been incredible working alongside the group, but in particular working really closely with Shams. Organizing the protest yesterday, the commemoration yesterday, because I've seen just so much dedication and, and so much giving of the self, of time and energy and, and intellect into creating yesterday. And it's, you know, incredibly inspiring for me to be part of that. Very humbling as well.
5: The two poems were, one was called, I didn't apologize to the well. And the other one was
4: that exiles don't look back. The essence of them both were lost. And, you know, for me and Adam to be reciting poetry that was for the land Palestine Mm. from somebody that was made a, a refugee because of Israeli occupation, it was very emotional for myself. A really touching moment to be part of that and to read those words. I'm out in the open air you know, particularly on a land as well where there's so much loss and suffering because of occupation and colonization. It was moving. Um, and it meant even more because
5: um, one thing that my son is 16, so the younger generations are growing up thinking about what happened to his great-grandparents. And it's quite heartbreaking for him to know that his great-grandfather was shot in Palestine. He was killed because he refused to leave his home. And his grandmother, who is my mother, she was left in the cot because of the trauma the family needed to run out of their houses because the Zionist gangs were attacking their villages. So they needed to run and flee really quick. So the shock of leaving the house and forgetting my mother in her car. You can imagine what the pain, the trauma they were going through. So realizing half an hour later, as they were running towards the border of Lebanon and Syria, she, her mother realized, I forgot my daughter. We need to come go back. And it was a really hard decision in those days. Like, what do we do if we go back? There's a chance we might be killed. Then again, her her mother, my grandmother, couldn't bear the fact not knowing what's going to happen to her daughter. Is she dead? So at the end, her brother, my uncle, he decided to go back and get his younger sister. So he he ran back and left the family. And he did find her in the cots. So he grabbed her and ran. And my mother is still alive until this day. The way she describes it, because she was only about three years old, all she feels is like her brother throwing her over his shoulder and running. And she can feel bullets going past her brother's head. She can feel bullets between her brother's feet. Then she felt the ground, it was muddy, it was wet and muddy. That's how she describes that, because her brother will fall. As he's running, he'll slip and fall, and then he'll grab her again. So that it was muddy and dirty, and then he'll just throw her over his shoulders and run again and until he reached the border. So they were forced to flee out of their home. They reached the border, and they were just hopped on trains, and they were taken towards Syria. So they lived in the um, refugee camps in Syria, my mum's family. And my dad's family were forced to run and flee. They ended up on the border of Lebanon and ended up taking trains, I think it was trains to Lebanon and they lived in the Lebanon camps there. So those two poems meant a lot to me and my family and my son. And to have Nina reading these poems together, it felt even more, it was more effective because it's support from a, a person that she um, understands and feels what how refugee people feel because she's had great-grandparents and great-grandparents who have been, in a similar situation, you know, the start of the exiles don't look back, it says the exiles don't look back, even leaving one place of exile. And so for more exile, that sort of meant a lot. And then I didn't apologize to the well as I passed through. It means a lot and might not mean a lot to someone reading this poem. But the the writer, he was a Palestinian poem writer who experienced hardship and experienced jail in the Israeli jail because of who he was in 1948. And then he needed to excel. He went and he lived in Egypt and he went to London and he went to a lot of different countries and... At the end he wasn't allowed to enter Palestine again but he lived the rest of his life in Jordan because he thought that's the closest to Palestine and all his poems mean so much and they all have something to do with what he experienced in his life when he was in Palestine and how he was jailed so he's got a poem for how he felt in jail and how he missed his mother and how he missed his mother's food and touch. They're very meaningful words that he's used in all of his poems and they all mean something very important.
0: Thank you to both of you for sharing your stories. That's okay. Thank you. That was an interview I recorded on Sunday evening with Shams and Nina, members of Free Palestine Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Kefirs are Palestinian
6: scarves. And they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. For your support for the rights of Palestinians, go to kufias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
4: allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so and what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What
3: we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in
1: order to build a case towards guilt. That's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to
5: keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe
0: now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. I think it would be true to say that until Julian Assange sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2012, few Australians knew about the small country on the northwest coast of South America, the Republic of the Equator. Ecuador is one of the most environmentally diverse countries in the world, and like other Latin American countries, its recent history and politics have been influenced by the US. Today we look at that recent history, and the prospects for the continuation of the socialist revolution launched by former President Rafael Correa with journalist, researcher and author Fred Fuentes. First, Fred, over the past decades, or maybe the last century, how much of Ecuador has been influenced by the US compared to other states in South America?
1: Oh,
7: absolutely. The reality is that all of the South America's obviously for for the past century uh, had a very heavy influence of the United States. But Ecuador, in in that sense, is is no different, and there's a few reasons, uh, specific reasons for that, uh, in particular the fact that it borders with Colombia, and Colombia's arguably been the country that's had the most sort of uh, uh, US involvement, including, you know, direct military involvement, uh, aiding of the Colombian military, in it's uh, the decades-long civil war that occurred there. Uh, That's also meant that the U.S. has until recently uh, had U.S. military bases uh, at a U.S. military base uh, in Ecuador uh, and obviously has for many, many decades now uh, in different ways helped propped up or supported different uh, pro-U.S. right-wing governments. Of course, that influence was impacted upon by the election of of Rafael Correa uh, just over 15 years ago, uh, which saw, amongst other things, that... The US military base being removed from Ecuadorian soil and, uh, and a sort of shift in the, the foreign policy of the Ecuadorian government. That, that, of course, was occurring in the context of where other, other countries in the region were also starting to, uh, if not completely, break with the relationships they had with the, the United States. Although, you know, the most extreme break, obviously, was w- what we've seen in, in Venezuela. But, you know, s- certainly a sense amongst the, the con- many of the, the left wing. Or progressive or centre-left governments in in the region at that time uh, asserted a sense of that perhaps uh, together they they were better off uh, rather than uh, individually trying to side with the with the United States against their, their neighbouring countries. So that influence has started to wane, uh, but but then more recently, uh, with the with not the elections that have occurred this year, but the previous elections with the the election of of Lenin Moreno, we saw once again strong US uh, influence uh, returning uh, over the government. You know, as I said, you know, p- part of a, a general tendency of what we could see in, in the region.
0: Go back to Rafael Carrera. Where did he come from?
7: Uh, so Rafael Carrera really was, a, oh, um, he was an economist. He, he'd done work with the social movements, although he, he himself did not directly come from the social movement. He'd sort of done work around questions of, for instance, cancellation of the World debt, so you know, with the, the impact that Ecuador's, uh, in many cases, illegitimate debt, so debt that was taken on by either by military dictatorships or or debts that were taken on by so-called democratic governments, but which had no real accountability to them. So, you know, the money, the loans were taken on uh, from IMF, World Bank, other institutions, and nothing came of that money as it was basically looted by previous governments, previous presidents. So... That had been his sort of connection. He, he then stood as a presidential candidate, very much as a kind of an outsider. So you know, he, he was this guy, uh, an economist, so had, had that ability, I suppose, to reach to more middle-class or urban areas, uh, sort of presenting himself as someone who could fix a country who'd been in terminal economic problems uh, throughout the whole neoliberal period, uh, much like the, the rest of the region, uh, but who also differentiated himself from, from those traditional politicians who, who allied himself with social movements. In fact, he, he had drew as part of um, negotiations to come up with his ticket for president, vice president. He had spoken with Indigenous organisations to encourage them to select a, his vice presidential candidate. Uh, in the end, that, that wasn't successful, but, but the process of trying to engage with the Indigenous movement, which is you know, one of perhaps arguably the most powerful uh, social movements of, of recent decades in in Ecuador was another aspect of his election campaign, and, and perhaps in some ways, he's, what really sort of stood him out, and made him very as a very bold candidate, a candidate of change, a candidate of rupture with what had been occurring in Ecuador, was the fact that uh, he only ran a slate for for presidency. His one of his key proposals was that, you know, uh, you know he said, look, parliament is just a, a den of thieves, parliament you know cannot be trusted. What what Ecuador needs is a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution, to rewrite the rules and he said that he would only govern uh, if he won an outright majority and and that the people allowed him to go to constituent assembly so he didn't bother to run anyone for parliament. Despite that he won in the elections and was able to move towards a constituent assembly which as I mentioned in the previous questions amongst other things basically banned foreign troops setting up military bases on on Ecuadorian territory uh, but had a whole other range of Progressive measures, everything from defence of environmental rights, uh, enshrining of, of certain indigenous rights, uh, through to you know in, ensuring that Ecuador regained sovereignty uh, over its territory, over, over its economy. At least certainly, uh, at least that's what's uh, in the constitution. Of course, then turning laws or turning words on paper into, into realities is, is a much harder question, but it certainly uh, paved the way for for a sort of a period of, of renewed left politics in, in Ecuador.
0: Well, he stayed there for up to 10 years, but he had the benefit, did he, of a resource-rich country. He had the money to do it. The other governments didn't look after the people. They looked after the, the bosses and the, their mates.
7: Yeah, so there was a couple of aspects. Certainly, one was that, much like again the other countries in the region, Ecuador was able to to benefit from a sort of boom in commodity prices. Ecuador is pretty oil rich, so that was certainly an important aspect of the funds. Another important aspect, though, was also the the, the question of the renegotiation of of Ecuador's foreign debt. So, although Ecuador didn't go as far as just essentially cancelling all the debt that it had with these institutions. The government set up a you know, committee to basically investigate into these illegitimate deals that had been signed between, the, as I said in some cases, undemocratic dictatorial governments uh, with these institutions of which the, the people of Ecuador never saw the money. And then you know, once those com- the commission had finished its work, basically said, OK, well, look out of all the debt that Ecuador currently has. And, you know, a large chunk of Ecuador's budget was simply going, not even to repaying the loan, but just just simply covering the interest on on these debts. So the government said, well, look, you know, the X amount of money, of loans, look, that's legitimate, that's been taken on by the government, that's been used for public works, we'll repay that. But then there's this other section of of our debt that is just illegitimate. And, you know, no democratic government signed this, no institution should have signed it, uh, a, a contractor, you know, given the loan to these to these dictatorships, and so we're just not going to pay it. That freed up a big chunk of what was previously, uh, you know, of the government budget money that was previously just going to to repaying foreign debt. That could now be released to to paying for for social programs. So, those things. A, a third aspect was a, a shift in the taxation regime. So, ensuring that firstly, oil companies paid much more royalties. Uh, back into to Ecuador. So, you know, of course, the price of oil can go up, but if, if, if the taxation doesn't go up with it and it's private companies operating it, well, it's just only going to be the private companies that benefit. So the Correa government introduced basically a windfall tax on, on super profits. They said, look, you know, generally you make an X amount of profit. Now you're making Y amount of profit. It's so much more than before, so we're just going to have a huge tax on that on that extra profit that, that you're making and essentially ensure that almost all of that money state in Ecuador, as well as an you know, attempt to readjust the, the general taxation regime to ensure that, that, that the rich paid more in tax. So all, all of that helped uh, the government to, to uh, firstly stabilise the economy and secondly use the benefits of, of that stabilisation to try to uh, tackle you know, the historic poverty that uh, Ecuador had faced.
0: How important to him and his governments was caring for the environment?
7: The issue of the environment was obviously an important symbolic aspect of the government. To be fair, and and it went beyond symbolic and and perhaps the the most concrete project of how, which really I I think synthesizes the view of the government when it comes to the environment, was the the Yasuni uh, ITT project. So so the essence of the project was to say, look, the the reality is we we recognize as a government that Ecuador's economy has been dependent on oil is dependent on oil, and if nothing changes, is likely to continue to be dependent on oil. However, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to have to rely on extraction of oil because we know of the environmental impacts, amongst other impacts, that oil ex- extraction has. So it essentially proposed a project to the international community, one that which it ran an international campaign around, which was basically saying, look, you know, at the end of the day, uh, carbon emissions don't just affect Ecuador. They, they affect everyone in the world. And so said, look, if the world is serious about fighting climate change, the world is serious about fighting climate change, but in a way that ensures climate justice, so it's not the poor that pay for this, that Ecuador said, well, look, we will keep the oil field untouched. We won't go there, but we want to come up to a, a, a plan where we set up a fund where governments, NGOs, whoever it is, can at least cover half of the money that we would have made from that oil, because at the end of the day, Ecuador still needs money, so it's all well and good to say to Ecuador, no, you can't drill for oil, but then how is it going to fund its hospitals? How is it going to fund its education system? How is it going to fund a transition to a different type of economy where jobs can be created elsewhere? That very much summarised the the government's policy, which was a strong defence of the environment, but understanding that that needed to be balanced with the the needs of people as well, uh, whether that be the needs to be able to fund social programmes, whether you need to be able to find alternate jobs for people in, in, in those regions. So, of course, the idea of yeah, Yasuni having been in a, in a rainforest area would have been to perhaps use that rather than for oil, for, for tourism, to promote tourism to the area. The reality, though, was that despite all the discourse internationally about environmentalism and caring and, and, and you know, talking about our bad governments in, in, in South America who, who are destroying the environment, uh, there was very little to no, no support for that initiative to come forward. So that... That, of course, had a, had a setback um, in, in terms of the environment, in terms of the project that the, that the government uh, had in, in that regard. So, but I think that, you know, to, to me, the, the Yatsuni yeah, project really summarised how it viewed the environment. It wasn't viewed as a, a one-off or something separate to the rest of society, something separate to the rest of how to look after the country and, and the people.
0: How did he get on with neighbouring countries? You said that, you know, there was socialism around that area. Did he get on? because he wouldn't have gone on with Colombia, but who else? Well, that's,
7: that's right. So, no, no, in, in essence, you know, Ecuador played an important role in some of the, the different projects of regional integration that occurred in South and Latin America. Uh, so, for instance, Ecuador, under Correa, was the headquarters for UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations. Um, so that was pro- probably the, one of the most important concrete achievements of of sort of regional integration that that occurred during that time, and Ecuador played an important role in in that regard. UNASUR was extremely important, for instance, in resolving a a very serious conflict that emerged, as you mentioned, a conflict that Ecuador had with Colombia, uh, because there there was a, I think if my memory serves me right, in 2009, it may have been 2010, but around that time, uh, Colombia bombed uh, what they uh, said was a a guerrilla camp, a a camp of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, but that was on Ecuadorian territory. So this was obviously a a real ratcheting up of tensions because we essentially had uh, Colombia uh, bombing uh, sovereign Ecuadorian territory um, and really put the the whole region on on a tense footing. But thankfully, at that time, because of the existence of UNASUR, there was an ability to bring all the governments together to discuss what had occurred and in fact, by by the end of the discussions, they you know unanimously approved condemnation uh, of Colombia's attack, including where Colombia itself agreed to and and, and apologised for what it had done. And that process, though, has sort of been undermined by Lenin Moreno, and and you know perhaps most most obviously by the fact that it, it essentially closed down UNASUR's office in, in Ecuador, uh, which during his recent tenure as president over the last three four years, so. But in general, even with governments that there was strong ideological clash, like with Colombia, during this period of regional integration, there was a sense that we we all had to at least sit down and try to work out uh, our differences. And and at that time, they were able able to do that, as I said, even to the point of resolving what, what in other times, in other places, may have broken out into open conflict was resolved through through discussions of, of heads of states in an, in an emergency emergency summit. And Ecuador, through Rafael Correa's government, played an important role in that.
0: With cutting some of the ties with the US, did that make room for either Russia maybe or China to move in?
7: China's probably been the largest government that's sort of made use of it. Of course, not, not exclusively. Uh, Brazil, as a, as a sort of a, a large regional power, has also been working in, in Ecuador. And, and of course... It's also facilitated treaties or, or agreements with other, other governments that perhaps Ecuador felt more ideologically aligned with Venezuela, uh, Bolivia. But, of course, th- those would have been smaller scale in part because of the nature of the economy in part because of the, the nature of what they specialise in. So, of course, Ecuador and Venezuela could share information or share technologies or uh, share uh, agreements on oil, which was you were know, two things that the, both of those countries uh, had in common. But there's no doubt that China's had... um you know, an increasing role in, in Ecuador, uh, be that in oil but also in, in mining because that's another important aspect of of Ecuador's uh, economy or, or this whole question of, of the environment. In fact, in many ways, the mining has been more at the forefront of the kind of disputes that have been occurring in the country over environmental protections. But here again, you know, we see certainly a rising influence of China as, as that influence of, of the U.S. has, has waned since the, election of, of the first election of, of Rafael Correa back in the, in the mid-2000s.
0: The world knows that Correa gave asylum to Julian Assange in 2012. What was the debate within Ecuador itself about that, or was it something that didn't really worry the people?
7: You know, I, I remember at, at the time that there was a, a real sense of, of support from the people for the position that the the government had taken. You know, there was a real first knowledge of the work that particularly WikiLeaks had done with the the recent documents, which, of course, had, like with every other country, revealed many, many secrets of what the U.S. Embassy... I mean, perhaps things that uh, were already suspected or or perhaps known, but, you know, here here it was in writing now what the U.S. Embassy uh, had been getting up to. I remember at the time, you know, polls indicating an extremely high level of support for what the Ecuadorian government had done uh, in terms of, you know, offering Julian Assange asylum uh, in, in the embassy. Of course, recognising, no, that, you know, the, the, that couldn't resolve the problem forever. You know, as we know, it was always going to be difficult to get him out of the embassy, for starters, and to get into Ecuador, because essentially none of the countries would agree, agree to that happening. I mean, you know, as, as one, one example of just how much these European countries were willing to operate against, The the governments in South America, we we know for a fact that around that same time, a a plane that Evo Morales was flying in, you know, was forced to be diverted because there was threats to um, uh, force that that plane to land, Uh, under the suspicion that perhaps they were carrying, uh, if I remember correctly, at that time, Edward Snowden. Of course, Snowden wasn't on the plane at all, but this is how far the European governments were willing to go into essentially, yeah, breaking international law to sort of capture... Julian Assange, uh, also Edward Snowden, you know, uh, whistleblowers that had really blown the lid on on what these governments had had been up to. So there was always an understanding uh, that this was uh, not the final, this was never going to be the, the way to ultimately resolve the issue, but important was, you know, maintaining the physical integrity of Assange and, and seeing what could, what sort of, you know, campaign could be built for his freedom. And that was one that many Ecuadorians felt quite proud of of, of the role that their, their government had played in, in taking that stand.
0: Well, what was happening in Ecuador 2016-2017 to end all this progress that had been made over the past 10 years?
7: In the region we were starting to see a sort of tide towards the right in the sense of, in certain, at least, countries, whether that be through elections, for instance, in Argentina, uh, where, where the, the, the forces behind Cristina Kirchner were unable to win those elections, and we saw Mauricio Macri, a sort of a, a new right sort of politician, win, win those elections, whether it was by more undemocratic means, uh, say, so for instance, in Brazil, where you had a, a parliamentary coup to essentially impeach the Workers' Party president there, and then the, the jailing of, of the Workers' Party presidential candidate in the lead-up to the presidential elections, paving the way for, for the far-right uh, presidency of, of J.O. Bolsonaro. We, in the region, there was this, this sort of trend to the, to the right. Ecuador's sort of shift, it, it took a different path though, because uh, lena marina had been the vice presidential, had been a vice president under Rafael Correa. Lennon Moreno stood as the candidate of the same party that Rafael Correa was part of. Rafael Correa endorsed at that time Lennon Moreno, although in, in the internal pre-selections he preferred other candidates, but there, there was a, a general sense of that uh, Lennon Moreno was the candidate of continuity, but what we saw very quickly, almost within a matter of weeks if not months, was a sharp, a sharp divergence in the... Political positions that when Marina took once elected to the presidency. I mean, so so sharp that you know, essentially, the last few years have been in large part dominated by a, a clash between Moreno um, and, and Correa, who was essentially forced out of the country because, uh, uh, much like in the Brazil's case of the jailing of the Workers Party candidate, we saw a campaign of, you know, what's generally referred to as lawfare, uh, the, the attempts to use the tribunals and legal systems to either jail or at least certainly bar candidates from being able to run uh, in elections. And, and that's what, what occurred with, with Rafael Correa. He was not able to run as president. He wasn't even able to run as a vice presidential candidate in these last elections. The sort of rightward shift takes a, a different route in, in Ecuador. It's, it, 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 via a, a, candidate, a supposed candidate of continuity, we see a shift. Uh, perhaps reflected by the politics that Leno Moreno already had, perhaps he was, you know, arguably already a, a more conservative or moderate element within the broad movement that, was, uh, that supported Correa, uh, but also perhaps a reflection of what was occurring in the region at the time as well, uh, and a sense that the government, or at least certainly Moreno, feeling that it was better to, to shift to the right in order to re-accommodate uh, uh, the government in, in the context of a, of, a new, of a new scenario in the region.
0: What about all the people who had benefited from Correa? Who was there for them to vote for in those elections? And what was the result when they lost and their social programs were starting to be disbanded?
7: Well, much of Correa's support at the time went for Moreno because at that time Correa was was supporting Moreno. Uh, Moreno didn't quite get to the heights of the vote that that Correa had. So we already saw that there was a gap between those who supported Correa and those who supported Moreno. But ultimately, that was enough to get Moreno through in in the second round of of the Ecuadorian election. What we've seen subsequent to that, though, was firstly the the fracturing of that support base for Correa. So obviously, one section stayed with Moreno, whilst another continued to support Correa and very much moved into conflict against the Lenin-Moreno government. So much so that it ultimately led to, to a split in the party. So, the, the, you know, Correa's party that, you know, he had set up, Alianza País, uh, yeah, Correa was essentially forced to leave and, and form a new, a new party, the, the Movement of the Citizens' Revolution, which was sort of the, the term or the name given to the sort of political process that unfolded in, in Ecuador drew, during that time. So, we saw that fracturing of the support that then becomes into actual differing parties. And the, the the parliamentary bench of the Alanca pace also splits in that regard, but the the end process of all that has essentially been the polarisation of support for Leonard Moreno. So he he didn't run in the recent elections that occurred were in the mix off, because it's only the first round that that's occurred um, in in February, but he hit the candidate he was supporting came if I remember it was a distant fifth, uh, you know single digit support, and in terms of the candidates who ran for parliament, again, you know, largely got wiped out of parliament. So so what we've seen is that whilst the Correa movement itself hasn't quite got to the heights of support it had back when Rafael Correa was first elected or during his time in government, it's in large part that that split has resolved itself in, in a way where Leno Moreno has, has been, you know, wiped from the political sphere. And, and the Correa movement has slowly had to rebuild itself, forming a new party, forming a new bench in parliament, running new candidates in, in these presidential elections, because Correa himself wasn't able to run either as president or vice president. And in that context, coming first, in the first round of the elections, with roughly 33% of the vote, which is, you know, a pretty reasonable outcome, although, as I said, uh, well short of the the 50 50 plus percent that that rafael correa had gotten in, in previous elections so it sh- also shows that during this, this period of time whether that be during the correa government or whether it be during the intense conflict with lena moreno that a, that a section of the population that had previously supported correa has not not been won back to that that political project and of course therefore a, a question and issue that the party uh, uh, well they, they formed an alliance for these elections the alliance that, that ran the elections uh, we'll have to deal with that. And were they to win the second round of the elections, which are, are next month, and, and Aruz, uh, Andres Aruz become the, the, the new president, uh, would also be you know, saying that they would have to think about, well, between now and then, have to think about how they can win, gain, regain that support to win the second round of the elections, to win more than 50% of the vote in, in that second round.
2: And
0: where does Andres Aruz come from?
7: He's someone who has,
0: has
7: somewhat a similar background, essentially, to Correa. Again, a, a sort of a background as an economist, bit of a profile in the media with some connections to the social movements uh, but without necessarily being a, an activist of the social movements Yeah, you know, very very much he, he sort of has that similar profile younger younger than than raphael Correa, so you know also has, that, has a, that sort of a freshness of a new a new face in politics
0: what's his chances in the second round
7: it's difficult as I said he, he got 33 percent. The next closest candidate was 19. So in one sense, he, he starts from a very good base. The challenge that, that, that he faces is, you know, what, what will all the opposition, the other, you know, what are we talking, 33 plus 20, that's it. what will the other, you know, something percent of supporters of other parties choose to do? Now, we know that in general, almost all of those other candidates are going to support Guillermo Lasso, who's the right-wing uh, opponent in those elections. That's pretty much a given. Were that to happen, it's quite possible that Lusso, coming having come second by more than 10% behind uh, Ruz, could end up winning. However, it's not it's not a given that all of these, op, you know, all, all of the supporters of these other parties will necessarily go and vote for him. Of course, there are ideological differences. Not every other party that ran in those elections identifies as being right-wing or identifies with the sort of more neoliberal policies of, of Lasso. And we also know for a fact that, for instance, the indigenous movement, in particular Coné, the main confederation that unites all of the other indigenous, that unites the indigenous groups in Ecuador, and who uh, had uh, largely come behind the candidate for Pachacuti, who came third in the elections, has said that as the indigenous movement Uh, understands that within the Indigenous movement there are different positions about, you know, who to support or not to support, but he's advocating that, essentially, that, you know, that we do a a, a null vote. So we we demonstrate our opposition to both candidates by going to vote but by nullifying our vote. Now, the Pachacutic candidate, Yakuz Perez, got something like 19%. That, you know, were the the Indigenous bloc to to sort of largely follow with null vote, that, that could be a deciding factor as to whether... The opposition is able to mobilise enough of the the first-round votes that didn't vote for Arouz to come behind us, or, or not not at all a given really at this point in time although as I said you know obviously Arouz starts with uh, an important lead more than 10% close to 15% over the second place candidate but also needing to get from 33 to, to 50% in order to ensure that they can they win in, in the second round.
0: Finally Fred, US intervention in this election Is it obvious?
7: I don't know if I'd call it U.S. intervention because I I don't have any evidence that the U.S. was behind this. But what we definitely did see was very dubious attempts to try and change the result of of these elections. And we saw this with the complicity of of the the National Electoral Court. The results showed no doubt about who had come first. But then there was the the second and third place, So essentially to decide who would get into the runoff, was extremely close between Lasso and Perez so much so that there was, you know, a call for a recount. But in the midst of this call for a recount, which was not a recount to decide who would come first, because the results clearly showed that, uh, all of a sudden voices uh, started to occur from both of these candidates to, to sort of say, oh, well, we think actually fraud has occurred, and perhaps it's, it's not the case that we came second or third, but that perhaps we were first and second. And all of a sudden we had agreements coming out only involving those two candidates and the electoral court saying, oh, well, we're... We're going to recount, but only in certain areas, on areas only decided by these two candidates. And so there's this kind of sense of, uh, hang on, this, this doesn't seem right. Like, surely if there's a questioning of the electoral system, then all the candidates should sit down and, and work out, say or the electoral court uh, should on its own bring about its judgment. But it, it seemed very dubious to just only involve two candidates who all of a sudden were now jointly standing up on platforms, attacking the candidate who had come first, implying that the fraud had not only robbed them of deciding who came second or third, but that, in fact, both of them had now come first and second. In the end, Lasso sort of drew back from that and, and sort of said, well, look, you know, I leave it in the hands of the electoral system. They can decide what's to happen or, or what not, uh, and I'll accept that. Yakult uh, who of course, having come third, has been left out of this, uh, the second round continues to uh, uh, say that he he believes that that fraud has occurred uh, there's not really been a, any evidence presented to justify that and it's still not clear if in his mind if the fraud is that he was pushed from second to third or if he still believes that Ar never really won at all uh, the elections and and this is then, uh, having been the candidate of Pachakurtik, the sort of Indigenous movement One candidate, has then sort of flowed on to the Indigenous movement. So, so Konae's position was that they believed something had to be done about these fraud allegations. They didn't necessarily back them, but they just said, look, this has been raised by a candidate. This should be investigated. The, in the end, the electoral court simply said, look, we're going to the second round as per the initial results. And so Konae said, well, because there wasn't an attempt to try to clarify this issue, We don't have faith in the system, and so therefore we're calling for our supporters to basically carry out a null vote. So that's the the, the kind of situation they find themselves in. In the midst of all that, you know, was the US involved in it? Not evidence, but then again, you know, we we do know that many other elections where dubious things like that have occurred, there has been always, you know, some involvement, some contact with with the US Embassy. um, And, you know, certainly the kind of stuff that WikiLeaks exposed, the kind of stuff that forced Julian Assange to have to seek, seek asylum in, in the Ecuadorian embassy in, in, in the UK. So I think, um yeah, we, could, we could certainly be sure that there will continue to be increasing influence because there'll be much at stake for the US in, in these elections because there's no doubt that LASSO will, will deepen the relationship with the US that Morena had already started to rebuild, whereas a, a victory for ARUS will be a return to the Correa-style foreign policy of, of more independence from the United States.
0: Thank you, Fred, and we'll have to just wait and see.
7: Absolutely, Nauri. No Thank you.
0: And I've been speaking with Fred Fuentes. He's a journalist, a researcher, and an author.
4: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
1: We've got a common enemy the same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel. It's the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part
2: of the same battle.
0: Here's something different. The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They're located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409 645. A 3CR supporter. Killer Robots. Sounds like words out of a sci-fi film, but unfortunately it's not in the future. I spoke with Matilda Boone, who's the coordinator of the campaign to stop Killer Robots. I asked Matilda first before we delve into the issue of killer robots and and her involvement in the worldwide campaign to stop them to talk about her long interest and involvement in disarmament and other similar areas and how it began for her and how it's developed.
6: Yeah, sure. So um, I started... I guess, in university studying international studies. And through that, I found myself really interested in uh, foreign policy, security policy. But what I was, I think, increasingly drawn to was how to minimize the impact on civilians. And so how civilians were impacted by conflict and looking at those sort of areas. So I guess one big part of that is obviously disarmament. And so during my studies, I actually came across SafeGround, so the organization where I'm based out of now, um, and Safe Ground history within the international campaign to ban landmines, Australia also moved into cluster munitions, so dealing with these indiscriminate weapons that have really great harm on civilians and minimising them through, you know, processes of inter- new international law. Um, and so I started working with Safe Ground, uh, like I said, and then because of Safe Ground's networks to other different civil society organisations throughout the globe as the campaign to stop killer robots. Globally, I guess, was really growing momentum. We saw a real need to launch a campaign here nationally within Australia too. So we linked into that global coalition and uh, basically started work to launch the campaign, and uh, that was the point at which I guess I sort of started being the national coordinator. So this issue in particular, what really, I guess, drew me to it um, around I guess we already are seeing autonomous weapons but increasingly autonomous weapons was I guess two major things. I think one is that we've seen many times in history with weapons things that could be developed that were developed and had you know disastrous consequences. So the atomic bomb, chemical weapons and I think you know the issue of these autonomous weapon systems is like this. We're not quite there yet but the potential is, you know, really horrific opportunity as a society to sort of stop that progression Um, and so I think that's really important and then secondly I think as well with technology the way it is in society ever growing there's huge amounts of benefits but there's also a lot of risk the idea of um, delegating the decision over a life and death decision to a machine to artificial intelligence is also a really troubling precedent so I think it's important to show that Uh, you know, society isn't prepared for that and to, you know, dehumanise warfare. So I guess that's sort of the main things that drew me to being, you know, involved in this campaign and really working on it within the Australian
0: context. You say we're not quite there yet. Who's working on this? I guess autonomous weapons are increasingly across
6: all sorts of different, you know, arsenals over the world. The main developers are Russia, China... Israel, the U.S., U.K., and also Australia, so doing a lot of work in this space. And I guess autonomous weapons, there's different systems being deployed currently and developing more and more. I think some of the countries with the more worrying weapon systems closest towards sort of, I guess, those lethal autonomous weapon systems where we're really trying to draw the red line would be sort of Israel, perhaps Russia. But um, what's also really troubling is that, like, Australia, for instance, whilst we're developing in this space, isn't prepared to adopt a really clear policy to rule out those developments that we're really concerned about that would be unlawful and immoral um, and instead have a very sort of opaque policy.
0: Why did you highlight Israel and Russia there? Some of the
6: systems that they already have in practice are some that are a little bit closer to what we're sort of worrying about. So, for instance, there's a system which is sort of semi-autonomous, it's deployed into a particular area, and it loiters, so it's a loitering munition and looks out for certain targets. So if it finds the target, it identifies them, and then there's verification done, and then it can fire upon those targets. And so really what we're concerned about with a lethal autonomous weapon system is that there's no human control, and so that step of the target being verified by a human and the decision to deploy lethal force being removed... And I guess when you have a system like that that you know it's you know only a sort of a step away that it could be advanced and used like that is I guess just an, an example of something that's quite a close precursor weapon to those that we think are really troubling.
0: How is Australia involved? Can you explain that? So Australia is doing a lot of development in
6: the area of autonomy and autonomy for defence. There's trusted autonomous systems, which was won- the first Defence Cooperative Research Centre to be launched, and so their partnerships between the Department of Defence, industry and universities to develop defence technologies. And so that's, you know, purely around autonomous systems and autonomous weapons. There's also work being done by Australia around AI ethics in defence, and I think it's really important that it's being recognised, that that's something that needs to be addressed if we are innovating and developing weapons in this space. What's, I guess, really problematic about that, though, is that there's been no recognition where the big ethical question is around taking the human away and the fact that we need human control in the selecting of targets and decisions to, you know, deploy, force, attack a human target, for instance. Uh, that's being not recognised in any of these sort of documents and discussions. Uh, which is quite troubling. And I guess in the same vein, while Australia is doing these developments, there's also international talks happening at the global level, which Australia attends and contributes to. But again, Australia's position is, for instance, that it's premature to support a ban, and so they won't agree with the notion that we need to launch negotiations on this to have a new international treaty. And a lot of the contributions made by Australia are very vague and deflecting from, I think, the real point of interest where lots of other countries are trying to discuss and agree to move things forward. They're sort of talking to tangential issues, which is very frustrating to watch, um, especially given, you know, we are working in this space. Even if we're not developing the exact weapons right now that we're looking to see prohibited, the fact that there isn't a clear policy uh, is, is really problematic.
0: And what's the reason that you believe that Australia is doing this? I think part of it is
6: probably related to the the link with the U.S. uh, because obviously the U.S. share a similar policy to Australia uh, on this and obviously are also a key developer of autonomous weapons. And I think, though, what's interesting is I would argue that the U.S. is even a little bit more helpful than the Australia is in the diplomatic stage during these discussions. So I think that's interesting to note. I think another thing, you know, perhaps might be that wherever Australia is currently focused, it's developing, it's it's thinking about those concerns and isn't actually thinking with the sort of forward forecast, like, right, we need to have this red line drawn in the sand now and there's no time to waste. It's a bit of an, I guess, unambitious stance, like, oh, well, we're still working things out and we're not sure in the future uh, what it might be like or look like uh, but really I think Australia needs to be taking leadership on this in a much stronger position uh, so I think you know that ambiguity might be a little bit useful perhaps in some ways as they're trying to develop and make sense of some of these I guess complexities around the issue but what in my view it's really important to actually work towards something concrete now and there's really no time to waste and Australia needs to be part of that process and promoting that that should be done.
0: When did alarm bells begin to ring on this issue of robots?
6: Amazingly, it's been over 10 years now. And I say amazingly because that's how slow the international community reaction has been. So in 2008, it was more the academics that started flagging like robotic warfare as a potential issue. And in 2010, it first appeared in the United Nations through a a report that was looking at extrajudicial killings and drone warfare mostly, but there was sort of a mention to it. And so then after that, a few informal meetings started taking place, and really structured meetings have happened every year on this specific issue since 2014. And the issue with these meetings is there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of trying to establish understandings, but nothing really moving forward with the urgency that's required. So part of that has been that, you know, it's within the UN um, sort of framework that's called the CCW, so the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons. And within that uh, framework, you need to have consensus so all of the countries agree to be able to move anything forward. And so it just takes kind of one country essentially you know, using a veto to stifle progress. And so that's been a really big inhibitor. And by the end of this year, there is supposed to be uh, a policy outcome, essentially, I'm like, what are we actually going to do next uh, and create. But it's unlikely that that will, I think, yield anything useful and concrete because there are those handful of countries that don't actually want to see progress on an international treaty or even a political declaration or something more soft that sets standards. And so, you know, that's been a real problem. And ultimately, there does need to be an international treaty. And we know that there are other ways that they can form and progress and be established within the international community other than the process that's currently happening. Uh, and this, that process is also stalled with, um, you know, COVID and concerns about whether they can meet and if the meetings will be held as they were scheduled, et cetera.
0: And also transparency about what certain countries are doing.
6: Yeah, I think transparency is, you know, a big question because I think a lot of this is, you know, weapon systems that are under development. And so if there is clear, say, international law that everybody agrees on, we then know, well, this is acceptable and this is unacceptable, this is what's lawful and what's not. And so development will happen within those bounds. Currently, when there's no standards and there's no way of, you know, militaries is disclosing what they're developing, we don't know exactly what's out there and what's being done. So I think if, you know, countries come forward and say, you know, we have a policy, we will rule out developing lethal autonomous weapon systems, we will never have them in our arsenal, uh, you know, that's really great and speaks to that transparency. They don't obviously need to disclose every single type of weapon system that they're thinking about, but we know that there's a commitment to not cross that moral and legal red line.
0: Well, we know how, how difficult and how long it takes for international bans to come to fruition. We've only got to look at landmines and recently nuclear weapons. This could take quite a while, couldn't it, even if it goes through to the UN? Yeah,
6: so I think it is a it you know, can be a really long process. I think what's really reassuring is, like I say, there's been talks since sort of 2014, so a lot of the preliminary work is done. A lot of governments are talking about the same concerns that they want to see human control retained. They're worried about how human control is. the technical words that are often being used to sort of like the in the critical functions in the temporal and spatial limits of autonomous weapons. So a lot of the work is done and there's a lot of other work that's been done outside of the UN process to support and really be ready for negotiations to take place that makes you know, a new treaty that is really effective in regulating this space. So I think once such a process begins, that's very promising. And that's sort of, you know, a big uh, moment in itself of showing that the international community wants to get something concrete done in this in this space. And so, yes, it, I think it'll be interesting to see at the end of this year when this scheduled review conference is supposed to reveal the policy outcome that's to be pursued, what happens after that.
0: As I said at the beginning, you're the coordinator of the Australian campaign to stop killer robots. What other countries have a campaign similar to yours? Yes, so the campaign is in—it's over 65 countries currently.
6: I couldn't tell you the exact number because it's changing all the time. But essentially, the, the campaign—you know—it's present in North America, in Europe, in South America, also in Africa. There's lots of different countries that are engaged. Uh, you know, here in New Zealand. Uh, so really, it is a global, a global movement, and so there is a global sort of, I guess, commitment and coalition to this campaign. Uh, and you know, working domestically within their own countries to assist governments or improve their policy, depending on what the existing uh, situation is, uh, and also then put that impetus globally on on these talks and the need to negotiate a new treaty.
0: What's been your interactions with the Australian government? We know the Australian government's official position from statements that have been made.
6: And so we've had some um, limited sort of discussions to find out more about the the position held by, you know, what's informing that through, you know, the Department of Defence. And it's interesting to hear what, you know, their concerns are specifically and what their rationale is behind those policies. Um, and it's something where the – I my impression is that, you know, there is a lot of work being done, but it's just not quite going far enough and there's still a really big gap that needs to be bridged. And we've had really good conversations uh, within Parliament now, starting to talk to um, mostly across the independents and crossbenchers and also within Labour just to gauge, you know, the awareness that this is going on and this is the current government position, because it's something that I think has mostly – occurred within a vacuum without very much political scrutiny, and uh, that's something that that we're really trying to change.
0: What will you be doing leading up to the meetings at the end of the year?
6: Uh, Well, we just had um, some time in Canberra during the last sitting period where we were speaking to politicians, uh, and we also attended a roundtable that was hosted at the ANU. And so we'd like to continue that kind of outreach with government and the relevant departments and the politicians uh, throughout the year. We'll also keep trying to run more sort of public-facing events to try and educate more and more people about the issue. Uh, So throughout last year, they were mostly conducted online, but hopefully we'll have a combination of webinars and in-person events, you know, between now and the end of the year. And I guess uh, we're also interested in reaching out to universities and university students because there's a big involvement, I suppose, with with universities in this area and university students being aware of what they're working on, so just extending some of that work that we've we've done throughout last year, uh, and I think they're sort of some of our main focus areas as we as we grow the campaign and put pressure on Australia to improve their position and be
0: a better actor and you know a leader in this process. Just finally, Matilda, a killer robot—they're not in production yet. Could you envisage what one would look like, what it could do, and what the consequences could be? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I guess a killer robot, um, if we think about a least autonomous weapon
6: system with the definition that I'll, I'll offer you now, which is a weapon system that in the targeting, where it selects the target and chooses to engage the target, so to deploy force and attack, This is done without human control. What you could think about is, you know, if you had a drone without a human operator, um, you could have lots of smaller ones deployed into, say, an urban area where warfare is occurring or in any other war context. These are systems which hypothetically could go around finding targets using facial recognition or other means through sensors, be like, oh, yes, I've acquired a target and I'm going to fire and since they've been activated, the human's not involved. They're not checking those targets. They're not deciding whether or not they should be deploying force and looking at civilians and collateral damage, for instance. And so then these, you know, weapons would fire in that context, absent of human control. That's sort of what we're talking about and where we want to see specific prohibitions, particularly if they are targeting humans. And I guess the consequences of that, there's, there's many. I think one is you know, like the dehumanisation, if if they are just using these target profiles. And it's just basically processing numbers and saying, oh, yes, this fits my parameters I'm going to fire is a huge issue. The other is the lawfulness of carrying out warfare like that. And there's a lot of concerns around compliance with international humanitarian law that such systems wouldn't be able to comply. Um, and another is also the intensification and fusion weapon systems that are that act like that, that go into areas and you don't need to deploy troops necessarily and so this lowers the threshold for war and I think just the real, you know, intensification and increase of harm overall that this would cause is, is a really horrifying prospect.
0: You have a website, you have a Facebook if people would like to contribute to your work. Yes. So if you visit the Safe Ground website,
6: so safeground.org.au, we have this whole section on the campaign to stop killer robots in Australia. And then you can also find the campaign uh, on Facebook, so Australia Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, and also on Twitter where we're very active uh, to follow along with what we're doing. And You can receive updates. There's a mailing list and you can get more information, watch videos and other content that we've you know, done recently. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to uh, come on and talk about this really
0: important issue. I've been speaking with Matilda Byrne, the coordinator of the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots here in Australia.
2: City Limits. limits
0: Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am.
2: City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment.
0: To transport and planning and housing issues...
1: To privatisations and our utility services.
0: To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band. If we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. Is City limits. limits.
6: Behind these prison walls. There's a man who's won awards for the work that
1: he has done. Tune in at 9:30 a.m. Thursdays to
3: hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of
5: March. This special four-part series will feature all interviews from, from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria, and back to Melbourne.
3: Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am, Home Run for Julian
2: on 3CR. Is
3: someone who is a hero, to whistleblowers everywhere.
0: Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news. Current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial.
4: What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
2: Tune in to Done by Law.
4: An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis. From diverse community perspectives.
7: Done by law, 6 pm Tuesdays.
0: As COVID 19 deaths continue to soar in Brazil, we focus on the recent history of the largest country in South America, the fifth largest by area, and the sixth most populous in the world. The starting point is the ending of the military dictatorship, which began in 1964 and ended in April 1985, when José Sánang was sworn in as the first civilian president since the 60s. The official figures of 191 civilian deaths and 234 disappearances at the hands of those in power are widely disputed. The real number of deaths, many of which went unreported, is actually closer to a 1,000, with an estimated 10,000 Brazilians forced into exile and more than 50,000 detained. I'm joined by Sasha Gilles lukakis thesis student, a member of the Australian Cuba Friendship Society and the Unitarian Church. And today we hear part one with part two next week. First, Sasha, how difficult or maybe easy was the transition from dictatorship to democracy rule in Brazil in the mid 1980s after such a brutal period of Brazilian history?
3: Just a bit of brief context to begin with. So, obviously, the coup um, happened in 1964. That essentially unseated the last, really, the last left wing government until the Workers' Party in 2002. And what you have, as you said, is this really brutal military apparatus emerges. You have a brief period of guerrilla struggle in Brazil. That's very quickly put down. Um, In fact, as... um, And we'll see this a bit later, Dilma Rousseff, one of the Workers' Party presidents, was actually tortured by the military regime. She was actually a member of one of these guerrilla organisations. You know, in the 70s, there's a period, I guess, of of acceptance, a bit of a malaise um, sets in over Brazil, particularly because we see this sort of dumbfounding sort of economic growth. And for a time, uh, prosperity for certain people, for the middle class, for the upper class, come to be known as the Brazilian economic miracle. Of course, it's not really a miracle. What it was was um, strong commodity prices, and American companies were investing millions and millions of dollars into Brazilian resource extraction. These two factors alone were really the main cause of Brazil's fortunes, but that quickly changes. By the late 70s, early 80s, we have commodity price slumps. Brazil um, is embroiled in the Latin American debt crisis, which is affecting the region more broadly. They're unable to repay their debts. And you see the stirrings of, of a movement that's particularly with the trade unions. They're, they're definitely the leaders. And, of course, Lula da Silva, who becomes the president in 2002, he leads the particularly active and militant metal workers union in Sao Paulo, in Brazil's largest city. Um, he goes to jail for a time. The military um, sends him to jail. But basically, the, the military leaders can see that the change is coming, I think, by this point. You have the, the leader in charge at this, at this time, João Figueiredo, he essentially implements an amnesty law which uh, in 1979, which is almost like a preparation for the transition to democracy. So basically this law, it's a double-edged sword. So it allows um, exiled activists to return to Brazil. Um, it also um, abolishes a lot of the, the crimes that more radical um, individuals may have been accused of under the dictatorship. But what it also does is it grants the generals themselves and perpetrators of, of torture and human rights violations total amnesty and total legal immunity um, in the case that they give up power. So at this point, the the generals are still in power. And then we have this uh, union movement um, attracts a a broader base. And by 1983 to 84, we have the emergence of what is called the Direiça-Ya movement, or the Elections Now movement. You know, you have millions of Brazilians taking to the streets across Brazil, across the main cities, even in the countryside, calling for free, fair, and direct elections, and calling for an end to the military. By this point, the military is struggling to to control this movement. Uh, The U.S. is also distancing itself. I think they realise, too, that the the military regime is losing legitimacy um, because this is, of course, part of a wider change across Latin America um, where you have the military giving up power in countries like Argentina or a bit later Chile, but others as well. And by 1985, the military says, we're ready to step down so it's important to note you know that that this was a a really immense struggle and that also we have to remember on whose terms the transition took place because the generals did agree to it the generals did receive immunity and we can see the consequences of that now with Bolsonaro's presidency he's relying on on these very same military men many of whom did commit or at least ordered um, human rights violations to take place and they're still a very powerful force in the country. But, yes, by, eight, by 1985, um, they've officially withdrawn from politics, and you have the first elections in Brazil.
0: And who won that?
3: During that time, so Lula hadn't yet created the Workers' Party. He was still very much involved with the, as I said, the trade union movement. Uh, like I said, the left had been suffocated under the military dictatorship. It didn't exist until until that amnesty law was introduced, actually, when it re-permitted the, the formation of political parties, um, and that's when, like, the Brazilian Communist Party um, was reformed, um, and a number of others as well. There was a Social Democratic Party, but the party that easily was, was the largest um, and, and I suppose the, the most legitimate, unsurprisingly, it served the interests of... Really, it served the interests of the elite and the, the middle class to an extent. Um, it's called the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party, sometimes just called Democratic Movement, and it was led by Tancredo Neves. He's an interesting man. He he was actually a member of quite a progressive government in the, in the 50s um, of Getulio Vargas, and he's the man who really... Uh, modernised Brazil. He, he actually broke the fascist movement or the original fascist movement in Brazil. You know, he established universal education and healthcare. You know, he was really... He's sort of seen as the founding father of modern Brazil. And this man, Tancredo Neves, who won the election, was a part of his government before the, the military coup in the 60s. He's since returned. He's a lot more conservative now. And he wins by quite a considerable margin. There's few other competitors. But what happens, remarkably, is the night before the election, he collapses. The election still takes place, but on the day of the election, when it's announced that he's won, he dies. You know, no one was expecting this to happen. So what happens is you have his vice president take over, Jose Sarni. Sarni and the Sarni years, as they are known, throughout the the late 80s, were renowned for their intense corruption. Sarni, really sort of began the opening to, to neoliberalism in a way. He, um, he solicited the IMF to introduce an austerity package. It was really devastating, particularly for, um, for wages and employment. Wages stagnated, but the prices of goods and the prices of living went up in Brazil. You had people who were thrown out of home, and they, they just had to go and invade, um, you know, vacant private property. There was nowhere else for them to live. And then paradoxically, he tried to introduce some, you know, some price controls later in his presidency, which didn't really work by that point. He, he, he in the end, he became very unpopular and he, he ultimately lost his re-election.
0: Was it unusual in Latin America, South America, for a workers' party to come to the fore?
3: They really began um, campaigning and actually began their first attempts to win Brazilian elections in the 1990s. So Lula by this point has been released. But there's still sort of, I think in Brazil, there was still very much this impression that we have to give the institution, uh, you know, the institutional parties or the parties of, of uh, the political institutions in Brazil, um, which are chiefly centre to right, um, of course, the benefit of the doubt. But as, as the 90s drags on, And you see increasing austerity, you see increasing violence, increasing crime, increasing instability. People are ready for a change by the early 2000s, and they realise that these right-wing parties aren't going to deliver it. And Lula really is part of what we call the pink tide in Latin America. He's part of the earliest part of the pink tide, which included, of course, Hugo Chavez's victory in 1998 in Venezuela. Um, and also the um, Kirchner's in Argentina, the left-wing Peronists, who also came to power in 2002. And Lula, in that election, he wins with 60% of the vote, I think even a bit more than 60% of the vote. He absolutely just smashes all the other parties. So so we can see it definitely as part of a regional shift to the left.
0: Can I ask you about the indigenous peoples of Brazil? It's a huge country and... The Amazon region is a, an enormous part of Brazil. How did they fare, both during the dictatorship and in those years that you've been talking about since?
3: That's a good question. See, as you said, um, Brazil is, is an immense country. It's incredibly diverse, even after the Portuguese conquest and the Portuguese-led extermination of Indigenous communities, a a really staggeringly diverse range of peoples and tribes and groups continues to exist today. You you know, you have, for example, the the really uh, reclusive Yanomami people who are on the border of Venezuela, right up in the north of the Amazon, um, who have barely received human contact. We know they they exist, but um, apart from that, they've, they've largely kept to themselves so, you know, this just goes to show, you know, just, just how vast Brazil is. Also, how remarkable the indigenous communities are. And then if you have groups who have acclimatized to living in, in cities like Rio. In fact, there's quite a significant group of indigenous people. I forget their name, but they actually live under um, Maracanã Stadium in Rio de Janeiro because it's, it's actually their tribal land. So they, they just live in and around the one of the main um, soccer stadiums in Rio de Janeiro which is fascinating and, and pretty remarkable that they've managed to keep doing it for so long. I'm not sure what the case is now with Bolsonaro, um, but I think um, they're still there, actually. So during the military dictatorship, obviously, you have this return to this sort of, like, evangelization campaign in the Amazon. So not only does the military um, send out priests and, and force these indigenous people onto, I guess you would call them missions, they ran a little bit, a little bit differently. They were quite a sort of formally institutionalised. But you also have concentration camps. We now know this because uh, after Lula and Dilma declassified some of the Brazilian archives, we know that there were concentration camps for Indigenous people for Indigenous activists. There were these sorts of schools of re-education which worked alongside the missions to basically try and erase Indigenous culture. And as part of those programs, you actually had this like Amazonian police corps emerge, made up of Indigenous people who were tasked with policing other Indigenous people. So the military turned some of these younger Indigenous men and women against their own tribes and against their own interests. From a young age, you know, they were indoctrinated and they were taught to, you know, to arrest Indigenous activists, you know, if they were squatting on land that, was, that had been bought by a, a cattle or a soy magnate, that they would arrest them. And, that, and this was a really, really big tragedy in Brazil. And, of course, towards the end of the, um, the military dictatorship and into the neoliberal period of the 80s and the 90s, you have this opening up of the economy. Um, And of course, there had always been cattle and soybean farmers in the Brazilian Amazon, largely domestic, though, up until this point. So you largely had Brazilian companies operating. Um, but it so opens up the way for European companies and, of course, the notorious U.S. companies that, um, that have been responsible in large part for the destruction and the devastation in the Amazon that we've seen recently, alongside the traditional Brazilian ones. In the military dictatorship, it's not quite as, as obvious. They haven't quite managed to exploit the Amazon to the same extent. But with, yeah, with the neoliberal period, they definitely open it up. They say, Brazil is is, is for sale, come in, come one, come all. And that's what happens. When we get Lula, we do see some changes. It's obviously a monstrously difficult task to, for the Workers' Party to, to basically tell these, these really powerful corporations that, no, you just can't operate in the Amazon anymore. But what happens is we do have a lot, of, um, a lot more territory gets designated as protected parks. We do have an actual anti-forestry like police force is established. They actually patrol parts of the Amazon and parts of the south-west the Mato Grosso region, which is also very rich in the timber that's craved by by certain companies, you know, to arrest illegal loggers and illegal farmers and things like that. And you do see for a time, particularly in 2010, 2011, quite a commendable reduction in deforestation and the destruction of the Amazon. But, you know, ultimately those processes do continue throughout the Workers' Party period.
0: Just wondering how much control the central government has, because it's, it's, as I said before, it's such a huge country and there are provinces what do they call the areas of Brazil where there be governors or leaders who might not agree
3: with the federal government it's actually quite similar to Australia the basic structure so Brazil has the central government and then it has a series of states and I guess the governor is the equivalent of our premier. So they actually do have quite a lot of, quite a lot of oversight, quite a lot of um, power within their state to, to make certain decisions, just like the premiers here. It hadn't been that much of a problem in the earlier years. I think only now we're starting to see when you have someone as belligerent and polarising as Bolsonaro and really, to be honest, quite, um, quite an insane central leader, you have these state um, governors resisting and going against um, central government directives because it wasn't really a problem even during the neoliberal period, it wasn't that much of an issue, mostly because they were all aligned to the right wing in some, in some way, shape, or form, all of the governors. And even with the Workers' Party, I mean, Lula won such a staggering landslide in both of his elections, actually, that there was very little disruption at all. I mean, you, you did have some conservative governors but they, you know, to go against Lula at that time, and even to an extent to go against Dilma, would have been political suicide in those two years because, you know, the country was experiencing almost universal um, prosperity, and particularly the poor people. So to go against Lula's and Dilma's program was actually quite dangerous. Of course, that changed after the coup against Dilma, um, and then you have the right returning to power, and now we're starting to see this fragmentation and this um, opposition between the states and the centre.
0: Just stay with that landslide by Lula for a moment. What did he do or what could he do for the working class, for the, the poorer people in terms of maybe health, education, housing? I'm sure that those areas had suffered under the military and under the right-wing neoliberals.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, under the military dictatorship, I mean, it was quite an austere period of time, um, even though, as I said, there was that brief period of, of economic prosperity, it obviously didn't trickle down to, to the poorer Brazilians, it never does. So, so the vast majority were, you know, you still had people obviously living in like mud huts and things, in, even in cities, and I suppose that, that does still happen in some areas, but it's largely been urbanised um, to this point, even, even if it hasn't been a very good process of urbanisation. Lula's policies are unique in the, in the history of Brazil, really, in, in just how much um, help and assistance they have given to the poor people of Brazil. The one program that really sticks out to me is one of them was called Brasil Carignoso, and that, that basically gave really quite large social assistance to single mothers for childcare, and it even some of the money went towards establishing um, like community and neighbourhood creations. For women to, to um, working class women to put their children, if they had to go to work. Another one was Brazil Sem Miseria, which was Brazil without misery. Um, that's the translation, and that was essentially a target to reduce, or as close as possible, outright eliminate extreme poverty in Brazil. And he actually did it. He brought 40 million Brazilians out of extreme poverty, and he eliminated extreme poverty. And now that is. Remarkable, You know, we, we, I often hear criticism of Lula for, you know, for not pursuing an even more radical path and not, you know, challenging the institutions of the status quo in Brazil. And I think it's, you know, of course, to a point those criticisms are fair, but I think it's, it's not useful when we consider just, just how significant Lula was, because we, we've got to remember, this was the first president in Brazil, probably since Vargas in the 50s, who genuinely cared about working-class people, who gen- genuinely cared about... The majority of people in Brazil and these policies continue under his um, successor Dilma Rousseff and we see um, she actually expands them um, some people have even said she may have been at the time even a little bit more radical than Lula she actually expanded the social provisions she expanded the scope and the reach of these programs to different areas of the country and she also um, introduced the Mais Medicos the Maish Medicos program or more medics program which brought Cuban doctors to the remote and rural areas of Brazil, where the Brazilian doctors, who are quite well paid, don't want to go. They don't want to go and spend their time in the Amazon or in the back country, out out towards Bolivia and stuff. Um, but the Cuban doctors do. They go there. They they treat these poor, marginalised communities. And that was Dilma Rousseff, uh, Lula's successor. You know, there was a real range of, of projects that they implemented. They they dramatically increased um, investment in infrastructure, public infrastructure. Dilma even, towards the end of her presidency, introduced a series of construction projects in the larger cities, Rio and Sao Paulo um, chiefly, to basically build apartment blocks that were um, safe for women. They were were essentially women's safe apartment complexes. You had like a bigger balcony at the front where 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 the women could kick basically kick their men out if they came home drunk and they would sleep out on these balconies. And Lula Lula and Dilma actually said, you know, you need these sorts of provisions in in poorer areas as well because because alcoholism and those sorts of those sorts of community issues are quite widespread in Brazil to this day. And they also established legal frameworks for the people living within these particular communities to report, you know, violence against women and make sure that it was actually taken seriously by the local police. So so that really significant changes took place.
0: Also, under Lula and Rusev, was there support for culture, particularly the Afro Brazilian
3: communities? Yes. So this was was another thing, um, and and this is the fascinating thing about Brazil, because prior to Lula, you know, you have such a diverse and such a rich culture in Brazil, you have the indigenous cultures, you have Afro-Brazilian, like you said, um, particularly along the eastern coast um, and in the city of Salvador, and of course you have, you know, you have the rich melting pot, really, that that has resulted from um, from those centuries of racial mixing, of, of cultural mixing. But during the dictatorship, during the 90s, and even before that, to be perfectly honest, there's this very severe, this very austere European-centered culture, uh, because, of course, the elites were concerned with appearing as European as they could, as close to the, you know, to the imperial center as they could. I mean, indigenous and Afro-Brazilian cultures are out, you know, forgotten, censored during these periods. And and then during the 90s in the neoliberal period, you have a sort of unofficial censorship where you have this turn to Hollywood, this turn to American culture. And, of course, that does continue under the Workers' Party. I mean, you know, it's inevitable. It's one of the the strongest and most overt forms of cultural imperialism on earth, you know, U.S. culture and Hollywood and all that. But Lula begins, and Dilma, of course, and Dilma, of course, does have um, some Afro-Brazilian heritage. They invest... Um, millions into, into museums, into cultural works, into dance troupes. They renovate um, a series of really excellent museums across the country, including the Rio Museum. That, unfortunately, burnt down during the neoliberal period. And, you know, you have um, an expansion of, of tourism related to, you know, indigenous, indigenous cultures and Indigenous experiences. Now, of course, that has problems of its own, but, you know, it does provide revenue to these, to these people who have, you know, for, for such a long time been completely cut off. From the rest of the country and cut off from the rest of society and it, it gives them at least a, you know a livelihood and a chance to, to express their culture they're not forced into it they signed up to these government tourism projects when they wanted to and you have brazilian cinema sees a renaissance as well and you have some particularly some really good afro-brazilian movie makers that come to prominence during this period and that's partly the result of what lula and then later Dilma expanded on this program of essentially providing designated spots in in universities and cultural institutions and public broadcasters for Afro-Brazilians. So a certain number of people in these institutions, whether they were students or workers or interns, had to be Afro-Brazilian. And what you saw particularly at the academic level is this this massive expansion in in the study and an appreciation of Afro-Brazilian culture. It obviously didn't resolve, you know, the 500 or so years of... um, racial discrimination that they've been forced to face and that they still face. But it was, definitely, it was definitely a step in the right direction.
0: You've been listening to part one of the recent history of Brazil with Sasha Gilles-Lakakis and part two on the program next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.